Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendet, part of the Crack Russia Analysis Team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Uh, he is not only one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, but as well as unmanned systems uh, worldwide and joins us uh, every week for an update on uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you back on. Thanks so much for joining us. Always great to be back, Margo. Uh, an, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, was sponsored by Leonardo DRS, which also is sponsoring our upcoming coverage of the Association of the United States Army's uh, annual meeting uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, next week. Uh, Sam, thanks very much again for joining us. Uh, certainly a dramatic period. Um, uh, and uh, uh, four um, Russian-occupied provinces uh, virtually at gunpoint uh, voted uh, to uh, be annexed uh, by Russia, which Vladimir Putin did last week. And on the same day that Putin made the declaration in a fiery speech, um, you know, renewing nuclear threats and all manner of uh, of other uh, rhetoric. Uh, uh, Lyman uh, fell, which was a uh, to Ukrainian forces, which was a key uh, Russian logistics hub and, and something that was acknowledged uh, by the Russians uh, as well. We had uh, both Nord Stream pipelines uh, had failures, uh, which um, the United States and its allies and partners have blamed on Russia, whereas Russia has blamed the United States. Give the audience a quick update on where we stand uh, on the battlefield before we get to other more specific issues. So as of this morning, Ukrainian forces control Liman, which is a very key infrastructure point in the Donetsk region, uh, something that the Russian military is uh, very angry about at the moment. Um, and uh, there's also an ongoing offensive in the Kherson region as the Ukrainians are trying to cut off significant Russian forces there. And so these two complementary and overlapping developments have really kind of pushed the Russians back, um, pushed them on edge. And as a result of these losses, practically on the same day as Russian president declared the inclusion of these new territories into the Russia proper, there's been massive amount of criticism directed against the Ministry of Defense, not just from regular people, not just from uh, Telegram bloggers, but from high-profile individuals like Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov and uh, Wagner Group uh, owner uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. And these are very high-profile Russian politicians. They've been involved in this war. They basically right. have their own militaries in the fight. And uh, starting with Kadyrov, who blamed General Lapin, who was the commander of the is commander of the Western Military District for failing in Liman. Prigozhin uh, piled on. Other Russian politicians also piled on, criticizing the Russian military for the failures, criticizing the general staff for nepotism, criticizing Russian uh, Ministry of Defense for essentially years worth of reports that, quote unquote, 
everything is fine on the Western Front when apparently everything was not. And so uh, this very public critique, which is not just directed at the MOD, but obviously at the president also without naming him, right. is really uncharted territory in, um, in the Russian political space for, you know, for the past 22 years, probably since the ascension of Putin. There has never been such public critique of Russian government's performance coming from the government circles itself. And so the questions are, OK, well, what is the long game for these people? What are they hoping to accomplish? There are lots of calls for change in leadership to bring in new people, new blood, uh, new capabilities. But it's uh, not clear how or when that's going to happen. Right. And um, concurrent with that, of course, the ongoing Russian mobilization is also an uncharted territory because such mass scale mobilization hasn't been done since uh, World War II. And so questions remain what exactly this newly mobilized force can and cannot do, cannot accomplish, especially when so many of Russia's capable forces have been badly mauled by the Ukrainian military. Um, let me, I'm, I want to uh, get to that in a, in a second. So Sergei Shoigu uh, is uh, Russia's uh, defense minister. He's a close ally of uh, Putin's. Um, what, what are some of the changes, uh, right? Because the difficulty with this is Putin is the one who drove this. So it's not as though his aides were, right? I mean, even, you know, we go back to the pre-invasion uh, weird televised press conference where his intelligence chiefs and a lot of other people really didn't want him to do this. And it was kind of abundantly obvious they didn't want to do this, uh, you know, when they were voting for the war. Um, so who are the most likely uh, casualties, right? Because autocrats have to start, you know, in the good old days, in the Soviet days, they'd just be shooting people or they'd have heart attacks or car accidents, right? <laughs> in this case, um, you know, who, who are the likely fall guys uh, in the uh, immediate sense uh, from your perspective? Right. Probably a lot of Russian politicians and uh, people in Russian leadership should be very wary of standing near open windows right now. But um, Shoigu and Gerasimov are at the top of the Ministry of Defense, right? They bear the ultimate responsibility for the military's performance before this responsibility is passed to President Putin. But uh, these people who went after the MOD, they kind of went after the low-hanging fruit. They went after the generals who were in the field. Uh, they were calling for some changes in the MOD, possibly replacements, but no one obviously named the president by name. And very few actually named uh, Shogun and Gerasimov by name as well, although some have. And uh, Prigozhin actually said that all those who commanded the Russian forces in Liman and had to retreat should be demoted and sent to the front line with a Kalashnikov so they can actually feel what the war is like right now. Uh, it's not exactly clear what's going to happen or isn't going to happen, whether these people are just letting off steam um, and then they will fall in line or whether some changes are actually coming. It is clear that Russia's conduct right now requires significant changes on behalf of the Russian military to help stave off an even greater disaster, such as one that is possibly unfolding in Kherson region right now. So some changes will have to be made and it's not exactly clear what kind and who's going to be held responsible for them. Um, let me uh, take you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, problems with the mo mobilization, hundreds of thousands uh, of draft uh, worthy uh, uh, draft eligible Russians have uh, fled the country. And the New York Times did an extraordinary piece uh, yesterday, which I'm uh, sure you saw. For those of us who have not been following Telegram on a real-time basis, uh, it was illustrative. Uh, you have been following all of the social media channels, Russian and otherwise, 
uh, to track that. I mean, Russian admissions of how bad morale is, how incompetent their leadership is, uh, and also their own complicity uh, in all manner of atrocities uh, against uh, Ukrainian um, civilians. How do these disclosures change the narrative? And more importantly, it indicates that actually the Russian people and anybody who has uh, friends or relatives engaged in this war know how bad it's going, right? So how much longer can the Russians actually maintain the myth or the Russian leadership maintain the myth that somehow this, the, the people themselves don't understand the senselessness uh, of this war, the pointlessness of it, and, and the fact that their loved ones are dying uh, in remarkably large numbers. I mean, some of these, you know, reports from the front line about what happens to these their units is just extraordinary. Right, and um, like I mentioned earlier, this kind of takes us into the relatively uncharted territory, a situation within the Russian military and society that hasn't really happened in a very long time. So I will be honest, it's very difficult for me to predict uh, with any certainty what is going to take place. You and I have talked a lot about information space in this war. And uh, we talked about the importance of Telegram and Signal and other platforms that were able to deliver very truthful, if biased, accounts of what is happening on the front. And Russian people had access to news uh, and media that was in, in a completely sort of alternative camp to the Russian state media, which has a very specific narrative. Meanwhile, these pro-Russian or anti-Russian Telegram channels we're delivering very detailed information replete with images and videos almost by the hour of what is actually taking place on the ground. And so Kremlin really wasn't able to challenge successfully this Telegram-led information space. Millions of Russians have access to this alternative news source, and they're able to get a much better picture of what they could be facing if they mobilize. And so obviously, I think if uh, these alternative news sources were absent in this war, uh, it would be a lot easier for Kremlin to mobilize significant uh, portions of the population. We also have to note that it's not 300,000 people that will be mobilized at once. They will probably be mobilized in stages. And the number one goal for the Russian military is to, to replenish the, the numbers on the front, sort of right. to have the, um, the quantity present um, to face off the Ukrainian advances. And of course, historically in Russia, quantity had equality all of its own. Uh, of course, last time it actually happened on any significant scale was World War II. And again, Russia finds itself in a very um, sort of new environment, military environment, uh, social cultural environment, informational environment. But we also have to note, and we also have to state that plenty of Russians believe state media, plenty of Russians believe in their government, and uh, plenty of Russians support this war. Some people are actually volunteering for this effort. Uh, rather than fleeing. Uh, the Russian government is also uh, seeking punishment for those who have fled. Uh, Russian government indicated they may be making lists of everyone who has escaped Russia right. and escaped the draft. Some people are calling for the redistribution of property of those who have fled amongst those whose uh, relatives, uh, fathers, sons, uncles, what name you, have died in Ukraine. Uh, so there's plenty of patriotism still left in the country even as the people begin to realize that this war is dragging on much longer than necessary. But again, plenty of people choose to believe the government. It is a large country. It is a very large country of 140 plus million people. And uh, for every one individual who has fled the country, 
and there are probably two or three who have not and who are going to be mobilized and deployed. Let, let me uh, take you to the last topic, which is um, uh, unmanned systems and how Russia uh, is uh, using them. Uh, obviously, the advantage has lied, uh, has been with Ukraine in terms of its use of long range firepower, uh, Western tactics, intelligence, what have you. But then the Russians started acquiring Iranian unmanned systems, and that's really changed the balance. What more evidence do we have over the past week? Uh, and how are the Russians using the array of uh, Iranian systems, uh, both short range as well as long range, and how uh, that's affecting the fight? Well, we have evidence of uh, Russian military using Shahed-136 lowering munition with uh, greater frequency. Uh, there are reported attacks in the south of Ukraine. Um, there are lots of uh, damages from these strikes, and it looks like the Russians are intensifying these strikes. In one such attack, Russians launched dozens of Iranian as well as dozens of their own uh, loading munitions. What's interesting, according to the Ukrainian military, is that these drones aren't used to their full potential. They are not used uh, for in-depth attack many hundreds of kilometers from the front. It looks like they're used in a more tactical fashion where they attack at less than 100 kilometer range. And that probably makes sense from the military standpoint because that's where most of the Ukrainian high value assets are like HIMARS and M777 artillery systems. Uh, at the same time, Russians are using other Iranian drones like Mohajer 6 with a range of 200 kilometers as an ISR element to guide these loading munitions to targets, which represents um, an evolution of tactics witnessed in this war when both Russian and Ukrainian mid-range drones, the Russian Orion and Ukrainian Bayraktar uh, were um, doing more ISR missions rather than combat missions um, since uh, these drones could be uh, struck out of the sky by air defenses. What's interesting about Russia's continued use of Iranian drones and probably its long-term reliance on these drones is that Russian MOD publicly stated that most uh, drones manufactured in Russia by many, uh, by many civilian enterprises by enterprises hoping to sell their products to the MOD, do not meet military requirements. And most of that is because of the components base, because they rely on probably imported components for microelectronic sensors, cameras, and other aspects. And so in a very public admission last week, one of the MOD officials actually said uh, to the civilian manufacturers that their drones don't meet military requirements. And um, he called for greater share of ISR drones greater share of loading munitions and a greater share of uh, EW resistant drones to be flying in Ukraine. So again, this very public admonition of the domestic industry is extraordinary in the sense that it kind of continues Russia's own mea culpa uh, right. that has lasted for years where Russians admit from the manufacturers to the experts, the specialists, and now to the MOD that they are behind the curveball. They did not invest in time uh, in these new technologies. They cannot manufacture them at scale as necessary for the current war, and they do have to rely on imports. And so the question is, how uh, long-term is this reliance going to be and whether or not Russian defense industry is actually going to get its act together and produce something that the military actually needs right now? Let me ask you one last question. Uh, the West is concerned about Putin being backed uh, into a corner and indeed uh, Russia's uh, uh, apparent attack on the Nord Stream pipelines seems to be a way 
for the Russian leader to be able to respond in some way to telegraph to the West that its undersea infrastructure uh, is vulnerable. How did you perceive that move and what does it mean? And how does the West have to react as a consequence? Right, because there's a sense if unpunished, it's only going to fuel more bad behavior. Well, that's a great question. I think um, the uh, attacks on the pipelines uh, may be a harbinger of what can come later. It also signifies that technologies exist right now to actually interfere with these type of commercial uh, flows, which exist um, uh, underwater, uh, meaning the pipelines and, and, and other cables that really fuel global commerce and fuel European commerce. And so again, I think this is rather an uncharted territory where uh, ties that bind Russia to Europe, ties that were in the making for decades and that resulted in Russia's prosperity, these ties are now coming undone. And the question remains what that means for Russia economically, what it means for its industry long-term, if indeed there's, there's going to be a very significant decoupling of trade and relations between Russia and its uh very important trade partner, partners like Germany and other countries in Northern Europe. And and, and uh, very briefly, what does the response uh, need to be, right? I mean, some folks are saying uh, that we shouldn't respond, we should bide our time. Others are saying cyber means, others are saying a whole bunch of classified things. But what do you, what do you think would be the menu of options that should be on the table? Well, uh, there should be a range of options, of course, uh, on the table, but uh, they should be weighted against the battlefield reality right now. Um, and uh, once the investigation concludes of uh, who and what is responsible for these attacks on the pipelines, uh, there has to be, uh, I think, a very sort of uh, sobering assessment of what the West can and should do against the country that has uh, threatened to use nuclear weapons in a conflict. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. and look forward to having you back on again next week. Unfortunately, there will be plenty more uh, to analyze um, uh, in the course of this unfortunate uh, conflict. Thanks so much again. Thanks so much, Fargo. And joining us now is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. I look forward every Monday, Vago. Uh, indeed, it wouldn't be Monday unless you were uh, joining us. We heard from Sam at the top of the show about broad strategic issues and Vladimir Putin and how he's doing and the extraordinary criticism he's facing. Uh, you and I have a tendency of, of or are or, or blessed with the ability of going down deep uh, into rabbit holes, sometimes of our own creation, uh, but sometimes driven by the news. And that's exactly what you did on your note uh, about uh, nuclear warfare. You increased the chance of a nuclear um, happening event uh, from 20% to 25%. But more deeply, how should we be thinking about this situation as the world debates uh, whether Vladimir, a cornered Putin, is going to use a nuclear weapon and what it means? Yeah, and I'd say first, I, you know, I think it's it's probably a consensus. You know, as <clears throat> Russia continues to experience setbacks in Ukraine, um, he's more and more in a corner. Um, use of, and I, I'm not in the school where I think this is going to be a demonstration. I mean, I, I think if you're going to use nuclear weapons, you know, what, what are you going to do? You're going to fire off one weapon and think Ukraine's going to fold? No, this would, this would be nuclear weapons to shape the battlefield. Um, so, I, but I also think there are going to be warnings and indicators of that event. We're not all going to wake up, I don't think, <clears throat> and see 
uh, that unfold uh, with all the attendant imagery and commentary, uh, you know, the way February 24th unfolded, for example. Um, I, I think one thing to watch, I don't believe, I haven't really been able to independently verify this, but I've heard that um, a lot of the Russian tactical nuclear warhead designs, they really haven't been tested or certainly not tested since the 1970s. So one <clears throat> indicator could be that there are uh, resume tests just to make sure that if Russia does elect to use nuclear weapons, it's not firing duds, which really would be catastrophic for any right. sense of its deterrent theory. So um, that to me, you know, for me to go from 20 to 25 percent probability, you know, that's still a low probability in my book. If I started seeing or hearing uh, that Russia was testing uh, tactical nuclear warheads, <clears throat> I would raise my odds significantly that Putin might pull that trigger in Ukraine. But then, of course, it raises a whole other um, set of questions. You know, NATO leadership, the United States has said there would be a very harsh response. You know, you saw General Petraeus state over the weekend that, that you know, NATO would destroy Russian conventional forces. Well, that kind of sounds like World War III to me. I mean, you know, and, and, I don't, and on the other end of the scale, I think kind of what we saw, for example, in Syria, when Syria used chemical weapons, you know, there were strikes on the, um, on the assets that were used to deploy those weapons. Right. You know, my gut, it's probably something in between. Um, and then and then it just raises a whole other set of questions. This is where the rabbit holes start opening up. You know, we really we haven't seen how military force behaves in an environment where nuclear weapons are used. Um, and, you know, I think this goes for both sides, for the Ukrainian and the Russian side. If the Russians are having trouble calling up, uh, you know, the mobilization that they're doing, well, well what happens when people see multiple nuclear uh, weapons fired, you know, you just kind of wonder, this is something that a, a modern militaries have not confronted. And maybe they were better prepared in the Cold War, you know, when they had the necessary equipment, overpressure in, the, in their armored vehicles, uh, the, the contamination equipment that was fielded. Um, you know, we probably really have to talk to veterans of, the Cold War armies to assess, you know, how how did you really feel about your training and, and were you well, really well prepared? Because, you know, there are parts of uh, Warsaw Pact Soviet talk where they were, they were going to plaster um, parts right. of Germany with nuclear weapons and, and then assume they're going to be in Bordeaux and Brittany in a couple of days after that. So it's different. Um, I, I just, I, I was responding really to Putin's uh, September 30th speech where he talked about the precedent of the U.S. using nuclear weapons in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And then, of course, in the, um, in the, in the supplemental package that got signed by President Biden, there was $35 million, uh, for um, the quote-unquote respond to the situation in Ukraine. That was probably, I assume, more for Chernobyl and Zapronitsia, you know, those facilities, but I don't know. It really wasn't called out in the uh, in the continuing resolution of what exactly that would be used right. for, but uh, that was another little, we were, you know, as well as just the rhetoric, you know, the warnings against, uh, you know, that Russia would face catastrophic um, consequences. So it's on my mind, and I think it should be on everybody's mind.
the administration uh, and uh, uh, has been thinking about this, had a tiger team that was set up. And when you talk to senior officials, they do indicate that we've thought this through uh, and that all uh, options are on the table and they don't want to get uh, specific about the response, but it, but you know what the national security advisor is is that we've conveyed uh, directly to the Russians and and through intermediaries as well, right? Um, why you know that would be a, a particularly bad outcome. Uh, uh, we've got a lot of stuff to cover, not as much time as I'd like. Just really quickly, what does the Nord Stream episode tell you, and how we need uh, to be thinking uh, about the vulnerability of undersea infrastructure? Yeah, I think it was a significant event. Um, I absolutely dismiss outright any suggestion that this was some plot uh, that, you know, the Biden administration had hatched. I mean, I think that's ludicrous. Um, but it's been a vulnerability that I think has been recognized for a while. The fact that these attacks happen, I don't think are accidental or, or you know, I mean, you, you just don't see three explosions on, on two different pipelines uh, in in that short a period of time that that could be considered anything other than a pre-planned attack. And, you know, broadly, it's part of the set of actions that have emerged uh, in Russia's behavior since the September 15th, 16th summit in Samarkand, uh, you know, where, where I think there are a series of events that you really have to link back to whatever Putin took away from that meeting with, with particularly with Z, that, you know, in effect, hey, you, got, you really need to speed this thing up and bring it to a close. So if the idea was, you know, you're really shutting the door on any hope that that uh, Europe can be bailed out of what could be an ugly energy crisis this winter, you know, blowing up a pipeline is a pretty, pretty significant uh, message to send. Um, what's the response? I don't know, Vago. I mean, I think, you know, you'd have to look at was Putin's motivation uh, really the, the the Baltic pipeline that had been opened between Poland and Norway, you know, to just kind of dissuade um, further further instances where pipelines are realigned and, and cut Russia out, or was it a, a much broader signal that, you know, that's a nice pipeline you have in Nord Stream 2. Those are also nice pipelines you have throughout the North Sea, and, and it would be a shame if anything bad happened to them, right? Um, so I, I just think you know, how NATO responds or how the U.S. responds to it. It could be anything from attacks on Russian infrastructure that may be in international waters to, I think, probably more appropriately a cyber event that would trigger or attack, take down some Russian critical infrastructure uh, that would send a message to, to Putin. And I don't think you necessarily have to announce this to the world. It just needs to happen. They'll get the message. Uh, Byron, you'd you'd make a great mafiosi. Gee, it's 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 a nice pipeline you got there. It would be awful if something happened to it. What happens um, when you grow up in the New York metro area? But anyway, yes, ex exactly. <laughs> For all of us New Yorkers, this is this is really how you behave all all the time. Um, uh, very quickly, you're looking at seven things. Uh, you know, seven things to look for at the upcoming AUSA uh, conference. Obviously, the U.S. Army's flagship uh, event. Uh, live and in person, what are the things that folks should be paying attention uh, to, right? Because you cover a wide swath of territory and uh, well, you, you, know, you and I are alike. We, we expect a lot when we go to these events, even if sometimes we're disappointed. Well, well yeah. And I think uh, my first thing, and I really hope is that army leadership uses this platform to really get at some of the issues that are bedeviling it. Uh, you know, they've fallen short of recruitment. Uh, they also are facing inflationary cost pressures. 
They've got further demands on force structure. You know, how are they going to use this opportunity to message those concerns and not get caught up in, in superficial fluff, which unfortunately is what I personally think came out of the Air Force Association uh, meeting. Um, you know, there, there are going to be things that they're not really going to be able to comment on because they're in source selection, but obviously statements of support and kind of the posturing around the FLARA, the future long-range air assault aircraft, um, is one. Uh, and, and then longer term, you know, is there still going to be support for FARA uh, as a replacement for Scout and eventually uh, the A-64 helicopters? Um, the industrial base issues, you know, are, are you really getting at munitions, precision-guided weapons? You know, we, we see maybe moving at somewhat glacial uh, paces to replenish those munitions. And I think everybody has gotten a wake-up call about how much is actually consumed in modern warfare. Um, the whole question of network modernization, you know, we had a deal announced today between L3 and Viasat that's kind of really aiming L3 more pointedly at um, JADC2, you know, when they when they bring those uh, data link capabilities that, uh, that, that Viasat will, will offer, but there are other competitors out there as well. So what's the state of play on that? Um, air defense, uh, the MSHORAD program, you know, drones and their use. Uh, so yeah, it's it's always, it's a great show. I think it's also a great show because you really do see a lot of our international partners exhibit there, uh, the South Koreans, the Germans, you know, the, the Israelis, your other European defense industry are there at scale. And, uh, you know, it's it's just a great show to kind of catch up what what's What's new? What's the industry offering to solve the the myriad problems that uh, not just the U.S. but other militaries around the world are trying to grapple with and 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 uh, work through? Uh, it, it, exactly. Look, it's uh, each one of these are also a bit like family reunions. Uh, so I do uh, very much always look forward to them as an opportunity to see um, uh, so many friends and and uh, mentors when it comes to Army. Uh, army issues and army coverage. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, what are the uh, events uh, happening this week that the audience uh, ought to be tuning into and paying attention to? Atlanta Council is doing something on, on secure supply chains and then the intelligence community and intelligence community uh, committee reform. Uh, and then another one with Michelle Flournoy on the six on how we deter China. Um, Aerovironment is holding an investor event that I think will be kind of interesting. And then uh, CSIS is holding an event on the Army's climate implementation plan that I think is important to keep in mind, particularly, you know, when we look at the damage that's caused by Hurricane Ian, I still think we have uh, kind of underfunded military construction budgets when you look at what needs to be done to make military facilities more resilient. Fortunately, Ian didn't seem to take a swipe at some of the bigger facilities in Florida or the Carolinas, but uh, we've seen storms in the past do pretty pretty catastrophic damage and maybe the climate change uh, event will get to some of that. Uh, and I should point out, right, two other events, Hudson Institute uh, uh, tomorrow holds an event right. on protests on Iran, uh, and then uh, CSIS holds an event um, today um, just as we uh, record this. Uh, so folks should check it out. It's with Celeste Wallander, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, talking about Russia's operations in uh, Ukraine. Byron, thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much, as always, for joining us. Really appreciate it. and very much looking forward to seeing you in person uh, and recording in person uh, next week from AUSA. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago.